You are listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 17th of December 2019 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View, coming up today. We shouldn't really be saying that if you are a minority in these countries, you shouldn't be given citizenship of India. If you've come to India asking for refuge, asking for asylum, asking for citizenship, you should be granted those things. Religion shouldn't be the test of it. Whether or not you're a victim of persecution should be the test of it. Protests in India as Prime Minister Narendra Modi is accused of discriminatory policies. My guests Kapil Komiredi and Isabel Hilton will discuss that and the day's other news, including a diplomatic falling out between China and the US. And will Boris Johnson be able to meet his own self-imposed Brexit deadline? If he succeeds in his efforts to pass it into law, he might not have a choice. Plus... Though by no means my all-time favourite, Let Babies We Build This City on Sausage Rolls was certainly a tasty choice. Christmas number ones and number twos. I am Marcus Hippi. Monaco's House View starts now. Welcome to the program. I'm joined by Isabel Hilton, editor of China Dialogue, and Kapil Komiredi, author of Malevolent Republic, a short history of the new India. And indeed, we begin in India, where protests in locations across the country continue over a law that would entitle Indian citizenship to non-Muslim applicants from India's neighbours. Those opposing the law say that the policy from Prime Minister Narendra Modi's Hindu nationalist BJP party is discriminatory. Kapil, if I may start with you, can you talk us through how this situation came about? There are there are refugees present in India from India's neighbours uh, and the law proposes that anyone who's been in, in India before 2014 and is not a member of the majority communities from Afghanistan, Pakistan, Bangladesh uh, will be entitled to expedited citizenship. But the only people excluded from that are Muslims because the presumption is that if you're a Muslim in Pakistan, Bangladesh or Afghanistan, you're not discriminated against. But that introduces by stealth a religious test of citizenship in a country that is constitutionally secular. So that subverts the constitution and therefore there have been protests across India as a result of this very stealthy subversion of the constitution. How necessary is this law? It is. I think it is necessary. Uh, I would say it's... I, I wish they would include Muslims as well because Muslims are pers- persecuted uh, in Afghanistan, in Pakistan, the Ahmadiyya community is persecuted. But we shouldn't really be saying that if you are a minority in these countries, you shouldn't be given citizenship of India. If you've come to India asking for refuge, asking for asylum, asking for citizenship, you should be granted those things. Religion shouldn't be the test of it. Whether or not you're a victim of persecution should be the test of it. Isabel, do you think Prime Minister Modi has a good intention over here, or is this law designed to discriminate against Muslims? It's quite hard to believe that Prime Minister Modi acted in good faith in this, given his record, and his record includes... um, 
as as you know in before he became prime minister presiding over communal violence of pretty savage nature in gujarat and and also locking down kashmir and opening it up to inward migration um so he has a track record of targeting muslims and i think that it's not what's what's interesting about the situation is that it's not just muslims who are complaining um you know people are are complaining about what they perceive as an attack on the kind of foundational values of India across the 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 communities and partly because people understand how very dangerous communal tensions are and have always been in India and this is a very dangerous move Gabriel, how damaging is all this for India's secular constitution? It's extremely damaging but it's also a very hopeful moment one of the reasons that people are so afraid is because there is something called the National Register of Citizens that is being implemented. When that comes into force, every Indian will have to prove that he or she is a citizen of India. They have to supply documentary evidence. If you don't have that documentary evidence and you're not a Muslim, you can say, hey, that citizenship amendment bill covers me. Give me citizenship. But if you're a Muslim, you're excluded from citizenship. Um, What it has done is it has galvanized Indians across the country. And this, I think, is the most hopeful moment in the last six years. Indians from you know, rural India, urban India, poor, rich, have come out onto the streets to protest against Modi, who's got a massive mandate, and they're saying, this mandate doesn't grant you the authority to destroy the constitution. And this is a moment, I think, of reclaiming that old India that Modi is trying to bury. We spoke to you yesterday on Monocle 24 on The Globalist, and, and you suggested that Prime Minister Narendra Modi would want to turn India towards a Hindu version of its Muslim neighbour Pakistan. Do you think that is an actual risk? Do you think he would be able to do that otherwise? Well, I think he's taking us there. The, the ideologies of Hindu nationalism and Muslim nationalism are very complementary. Pakistan was created as a homeland for India's Muslims. And Hindus, Hindu nationalists said, hang on a second, if Muslims have got a state of their own, Hindus should have a state of their own as well. But Nehru and Gandhi said, no, India will be a secular state. And the Hindu nationalist movement has been fighting for 70 years to complete the business of partition and convert India into a Hindu Pakistan. And he's taking us very close to it. But this moment, what is happening in India, across India right now, is a barrier to that. And this is an extremely hopeful moment. Isabel, what do you think? How is the world viewing India at the moment? How significantly is is the way India is seen internationally changing now, considering the direction Narendra Modi is taking it towards? Well, I I mean, Modi, you know, came to power with with a very dubious record. He's had a he's had a pretty easy ride um, lately, and he was celebrated by Donald Trump, uh, you know, who who may well approve of moves against uh, Muslims, and certainly didn't seem to disapprove of them. Uh, he had was re- received like a, you know, honoured visitor in the United States. And I think that, you know, the way the world is moving, uh, we are becoming less, you know, reactive to to moves like this. Of course, the UN, you know, the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights has has expressed deep concern. But in terms of states, it's, it's not obvious that he's going to pay a price for this. Kabi, what do you think is going to happen next? It depends on what kind of a movement uh, comes into being in opposition to Modi. If this movement is hijacked by the opposition Congress party, which has led India for 55 years, I think we'll go back to being the kind of country we were. If this gives rise to really radical, inclusive politics, then we might see, we might look back on Modi as the moment that he was a warning to India and India uh, very nearly hit the bottom and then bounced back. 
it depends on what kind of uprising this is. If he succeeds in crushing it, I don't think it'll be the end of his woes. And the economy at this moment is in such a terrible state. The unemployment rate in India is the highest it's been in 45 years. So he's trying to create a distraction. So this chaos might actually serve him. But I think his easy days, days of an easy ride, are behind him. Do you think those demonstrators on the streets now are also going to be a factor when Narendra Modi has to think about what to do with this law first? And let's let's also remember that the United Nations Human Rights Office has also voiced concern that the new law is fundamentally discriminatory in nature. Do you think this law is going to be reviewed again? Uh, it will be reviewed. It will be reviewed in the Supreme Court. Someone's already a member of parliament uh, from my city has actually gone to the Supreme Court. Uh, it will be reviewed. It will be put to judicial scrutiny. And I think it is violative of, con- of the Constitution and it should, in theory, be struck down. But one of Modi's achievement has been to gut every independent institution in India and the Supreme Court has become so supine. Uh, so it will depend on whether or not the judges are willing to show a spine or not. Kapil Komireddy and Isabel Hilton there. We'll be back in just a moment, but first here is Monaco's Ben Rylan with some of the other stories we've been following today. Thanks, Marcus. Boeing says it will temporarily halt production of its 737 MAX airliner. The model has been grounded for nine months after two deadly crashes, and Boeing wanted to have the aircraft back in the air by the end of this year. But US regulators say the planes have not been cleared to return to the skies. The US President Donald Trump will face a key impeachment vote in the House of Representatives later this week. The lawmakers will decide on charges stemming from Trump's effort to pressure Ukraine, to investigate political rival Joe Biden. Trump claims the accusations are baseless. And Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas Is You has topped the US charts a quarter of a century after it was first released. The festive stomper made its debut in 1994, but it was released as an EP rather than a single, which meant it was ineligible to take up a place on Billboard's Hot 100. I'm Ben Ryland. That's what's making news. Back to you, Marcus. Thanks, Ben. This is Monaco's House View. I am Marcus Hippi here with Kapil Komireddy and Isabel Hilton. We move on now to Beijing, where the Chinese government this week has acknowledged that two of its diplomats have been recently expelled in secret by Washington. The US claims the two individuals were spying, having trespassed on a military base in Virginia. The Chinese expulsions are the first by the US since 1987, and come at a time when the reach of Chinese intelligence services and its tech capabilities too are causing global concern. Isabel, could you first talk us through what went on in Virginia as China is saying it's been blown out of all proportion? Well, they um, strayed, as they would say, innocently into a, a rather sensitive military base. How easily does that happen? Well, not terribly. Um, it, it was a fenced off <laughs> in a compound. They were challenged um, at the outer perimeter and, perimeter and they were eventually stopped by a series of vehicles that, you know, kind of blocked their way. Um, in mistake and can happen to anyone on a picnic they were there with their wives what's really interesting though and and there has been you know there has been quite a lot of concern in the United States at the number of times Chinese diplomats sort of pop up in curious places such as this um, they seem to be on a mapping exercise of some some sort um, 
What's curious is that this happened in September and neither side said anything about it until the New York Times got hold of it. And, and really, they're only fessing up to it once the uh, ink has has dried on this rather feeble trade deal that, that Donald Trump is claiming as a massive victory. So there was a lot going on between the US and China. And I, I have the impression that neither side really wanted to make it any worse. Exactly. As, as you mentioned, this this whole news story was only revealed by the New York Times now, even though it's been months since these, these diplomats were caught. What was the thinking? Why was it that neither Washington nor Beijing made an announcement at the time? Well, I think I think it, it wasn't going to help. You know, if you think that they had the trade talks were very uh, Rocky, uh, Hong Kong was was in full flood, and uh, the U.S. was being accused, and is still being accused, of being the black hand behind the riots. You know, there is quite a lot of retaliation that China can take and might feel obliged to take when this, you know, when a story like this becomes public, because you have to remember that this is also a nationalist uh, regime, and if it's seen to be being uh, quote unquote bullied by the United States, then then it has to res- it. Has has to react. So I think it wasn't really in anybody's uh, interest to to just add another kind of wild card into an already complicated situation. Kabil, what do you think? How serious was this incident, considering that this has been said to be the first time in more than 30 years that the US expels Chinese diplomats in suspicion of espionage? This has been uh, to move away. I think this highlights to me the fear I have seen elsewhere. I was in Sri Lanka last month covering the elections there and Sri Lankan politicians are saying that we're terrified of the incursion of Chinese into our country. Uh, The Indians say the same thing. You go in many places across the world, there is a terror of uh, Chinese takeover and the expulsion by America of these Chinese diplomats seems to be an escalation of sorts and it is a shift from... You know, there was a Cold War between the Soviet Union and America, and China has always been seen as the successor to the Soviet Union in that kind of a game. And this is a formalization of that, I think. A little more complicated, though, in the sense that the the field of of attack, if you like, is much broader for China Mm. because they have hundreds of thousands, for example, of graduate students and academic staff in some of them in sensitive research areas. And Stephen Miller, Donald Trump's... um, uh, Emanuensis uh, did propose at one point to uh, to expel all the Chinese students in the United States, mm-hmm. which would have been an absolutely extraordinary upheaval. But there is a sense, you know, and they have there is a lot of evidence of of intelligence harvesting, not just by diplomats, but across a, a whole field of academic life, research life, and technical uh, and and technology companies. That's harder to deal with. You can't expel people, and you can't simply discriminate them. Discriminate against them on the grounds that they're Chinese. And let's also remember the concerns over Huawei. Just last week, China threatened Germany, for example, with retaliation if Berlin excludes Huawei as a supplier of 5G equipment. Considering all that and considering that bad reputation Beijing basically has now globally. Do you think Beijing is eventually going to face a backlash? Well, it's certainly facing a, facing a backlash now. I mean, you know, the, there is a sense of overreach. Uh, it's not just Germany. I mean, to, to say we will we will declare German cars unsafe if you don't take Huawei, 
it's you know, it's pretty direct. But you no, know, Denmark had a similar uh, conversation about the Faroe Islands. Don't if you don't take Huawei, you know, you can forget. Uh, you can forget the, forget the Faroes exporting their fish to Beijing, um, and China's just been throwing its weight around in a way that is really putting backs up at the moment. So I think they're, you know, they're going to have to, you know, step back a little bit. Kapil, do you think there would be this would be the right time for a Chinese charm offensive, and what would that mean in practice? You know, Marcus, when, when in, in the nineties, when the Soviet Union collapsed, the thinking was that China should be brought into global institutions. That's the way to influence China. And over the past 20 years, what we've seen is China influencing the West. It's Western films that are censored to appease Chinese censors. It is Western books that are censored. And when Liu Zhubao was given the Nobel Prize, China wouldn't allow Norwegian salmon to enter its shores. China bullies countries in a manner that is staggering. And what kind of pushback? There is no unity in the West right now to come up with a pushback against China. And China profits from that. And China gets away with it. China there, gets there, away with it. I think, though, there is a rising concern. If you look at what NATO said at the last meeting about about China, it's almost impossible to get Europe to act as one. But they are trying. And there was a very stern report from Mogherini's office uh, at the end of last year. Again, uh, just essentially laying out the fact that China may be uh, a, an important commercial partner and economic mm. partner, but it's also a strategic competitor. So I think it's been it's been laid out, and now it's up to it's up to uh, China's partners to to take what action they feel comfortable. I with. always look at Tibet, and I find that Tib- Tibet, being the world's largest colony, uh, the West dispenses uh, statements about human rights abuses on a regular basis. But when it comes to Tibet, Tibetan politicians often complain that they can't get a meeting with anybody because everyone's afraid of annoying China. Well, yes, D- David Cameron got put in the deep freeze for meeting the Dalai Lama. Um, although it must be said that um, trade and commerce went on flourishing, whether whether David Cameron went to Beijing or not. So, you know, I think it, it really is up to China's partners to you know, not to give in. China I think West, does West, need to trade. The West has compromised its own values in order to yes. trade with China. I agree. Rather than influencing China's politics. But it's not necessary, I think, you know, given that China does need to trade. Where else is it going to trade? Where's its biggest market? It's in Europe. Let's continue to the UK next, where Prime Minister Boris Johnson is looking to write into law that the UK must leave the EU by the end of 2020. The measure comes as one of his first policies as UK parliamentarians begin to be sworn in this week. Parliament will officially reopen on Thursday. Kapil, we've seen multiple deadlines come and go on Brexit. Do you think Johnson is doing himself any favours by adding another by law? Uh, I... The thinking there seems to be uh, in the CCHQ that the reason the Europeans have played Britain is because of the appearance of disunity within Britain. And Boris Johnson is now trying to convey an impression of unity and strength by adding to by legislating uh, that there can be no other extension. And it is a manner, I think, of squeezing the Europeans. That is my that is the impression I get, because if the Europeans feel that, oh, we can't push Britain around, they will give Britain what it wants. That seems to be Boris Johnson's thinking on this. Yeah, government sources are suggesting that this deadline will help focus minds on both sides of the negotiating table. Isabel, do you think that will work? 
it may focus minds. It doesn't necessarily lead to a better deal. When you know this is a trap for Boris Johnson as much as for Europe, because you know they, the Europe can say, well, they're looking at a cliff edge. You know, <laughs> let's hang, let's hang tough. And you know, Britain Johnson hasn't done very well in negotiation. I mean, he comes back proclaiming he's got a new deal, but uh, all he did was stiff Ireland, and and you know that was that was not something that he really you know ethically should have done. Um, looking at the cliff edge prospect um, and what they call trading under WTO rules, it seems highly unlikely that in a year's time the WTO is going to be a useful functioning organisation. It's almost stopped at present because um, Boris Johnson's friend Donald Trump is refusing to uh, to sanction the appointment of judges to the Court of Arbitration and that is the most useful part of the WTO. So I think that you know the Brits have, have had the illusion that Europe needs Britain more than Britain needs Europe and this is going to be the testing ground and uh, you can still hear it in what ministers are saying you know we'll show them well yeah go ahead let's see Kapil do you think Boris Johnson believes in Brexit or is he just playing a political game here you know speculating what that man believes is going to drive us all mad he believes in so many things uh, but I think none. <laughs> but I think Isabel said something that's so interesting. He's shackling himself because the reality of today, he's just won a massive mandate. A year from now, the world is going to be very different. And I think what looks like a great negotiating tactic right now, well, he'll find himself fettered by it within a year's, within a year's time, I fear. And do you also think that, you know, let, let, let's give it a year or two. Do you think Brexiteers, Boris Johnson and his government, do you think they're going to be... They're going to be have to answer questions when people are asking why their lives haven't actually improved post-Brexit. Well, he does own this now. You know, I mean, on, on all through the campaign, it was always somebody else's fault. You know, all these Remainers and Ramonas stopping stopping the purity of his vision. Well, you know, he's got a, a thumping great majority. Let's see how his vision stands up. But this negotiation, like all negotiations, is about allocating uh, reward and pain. And a hard Brexit, allocates pain to a very substantial part of the economy, including, you know, the motor industry, which is located mostly up behind the red wall. So I think this is going to be, uh, as always, rather more complicated than it seems when you're just mouthing a three-word slogan. And just finally, the same question for both of you. At least before the election, Boris Johnson's government was planning a huge festival to celebrate Brexit after it happens. What do you think the Brexit festival should include and are you looking forward to it? Uh, beheadings, I suppose, uh, and, uh, you know, uh, performative seppuku where people take knives and disembowel themselves, uh, something like that. I can't think of anything more appropriate. There could be a Scottish pavilion in which they say, <laughs> let Scotland take back control. Isabel Hilton and Kapil Komiredi, thank you. In a moment, we'll hear a little bit more about the music of Christmas. You are listening to Monocle's House View. Stay tuned. This is Monaco's House View. I am Marcus Hippi. Finally today, our culture correspondent Fernando Augusto Pacheco draws up his list of naughty and nice pop favourites that'll be saving him from tears this year. 
What do the Pet Shop Boys, Bob the Builder and Rage Against the Machine have in common? They all had a Christmas number one song in the UK. For me, it's one of the most fascinating things about the country, the importance attached by press and public to who will reach the peak of the charts during that special festive week. To be sure, there have been some rather anodyne entries from talent TV shows claiming the top spot in the past decade, usually with sugar-free remakes of classic songs. But I get the impression that wacky novelty singles are coming back in vogue. You can't do this. What do you mean I can't do this? You've written a song about a sausage roll. Babe, I'm doing this for you. I'm, this is your Christmas present. I'm trying to win you Christmas number one. I need you on the vocals because like, my voice is too... Just look at last year's Christmas number one. Though by no means my all-time favourite, Let Babies, We Build This City on Sausage Rolls was certainly a tasty choice. We built this city. We built this city on sausage rolls. We built this city. Come on, baby. And talking about Let Baby, he's one of the main contenders again this year. With his follow-up smash, I Love Sausage Rolls, the last act with consecutive Christmas number ones were the delightful Spice Girls. Other contenders this year include rapper Stormzy, with his latest single featuring Ed Sheeran and Burna Boy. Wen's everlasting Last Christmas is in with a chance too. Can you believe that it was never a number one hit in the UK charts? Instead, it has the odd distinction of being the best-selling number two song of all time. Long live the holiday spirit in the charts. What's my favorite Christmas number of all time, you ask? Well, that would have to be the 1978 classic Mary's Boy Child, Oh My Lord, by Euro-Caribbean group Bon A.M. Since I like a bit of cheesy music, isn't that what the holidays are all about? From Monaco, I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Monaco's very merry Fernando Augusto Pacheco there with his jolly jukebox. And that's all for today's programme. Monaco's House View was produced by Tom Hall. Our studio managers were Steph Jungo and David Stevens. Coming up at 2000 London time, a brand new edition of Monaco on Design. This programme, Monaco's House View, is back at the same time tomorrow. That is at 1800 in London, 10am in San Francisco. I am Marcos Hipp. Thanks for listening and goodbye.